Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you are new to the Bible, you can probably turn to the table of contents in your Bible and find the page number for 1 Corinthians and find it there, or you can pull it up on your app on your phone if you are a uh, techie type or under the age of 80. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, let's pray and then we'll get into it. God, we, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to come and to, uh, to be in your word, to worship together. Uh, as we listen to uh, the word this morning and as, as, uh, as we lean into uh, the, these pages and, and hear what, what it is that you're, you're saying, we ask that you help us, that your Holy Spirit opens our eyes to your truth. Uh, as we deal with very difficult subject matter, 1 Corinthians is not an easy book. We've already discovered that. Um, we ask that, that you just simply help us, uh, that you give me grace as I communicate. Um, help me to communicate in a way that is, that is uh, loving and that is um, caring uh, and that doesn't take uh, any of these truths flippantly. Um, and anything that I might say that uh, would not be uh, would not be your truth. We just simply ask that you erase that from our memories as quick as possible. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we begin, let me tell you a story. A man named Abraham, not the Abraham in the Bible, but another Abraham that's currently alive today, was 19 years old. He had grown up in church. His, uh, he, was, he was a member of a, of a church. At 19, he decided that he was going to stop pretending this sort of religious stuff, and, uh, and really what he wanted to do was just simply enjoy and pursue the world. And so he did that and, and began drinking gallons of uh, cheap sangria and sleeping around with as many girls as he possibly could. This was the life that he turned to. Now, this broke, of course, the heart of uh, his church family. Uh, the elders of the church began to pursue him, and they pursued him as far as they possibly could. Some members in the church began to pursue him as well and, and, and help him and, and, and warn him of the path that he was on uh, as, as he continued to move into a life of just destruction, just literally destroying his life and destroying relationships. Uh, the church's heart was broken as, as, as far as they could pursue him, uh, there was just simply no turning back on his part. Now, what does the church do? Um, they were left with a very, in a very difficult position. He's a member of our church. Um, our church calls him uh, a Christian. Uh, we, we, we have affirmed that he is a brother in Christ. We have taken communion with him as, uh, as one under the gospel. Um, now, nobody, nobody in the church is believing that they are perfect. Um, everybody sort of recognizes, now, I've got sin as well. Like, there's ongoing sin in my own life. Um, but it seems like this, this brother is, is just unrepentant. Like, there's no sense of grieving over sin. There's no sense of re, uh, repentance, no sense of a, a desire to change. It's, it's more of a desire for the world as opposed to a desire for Christ. Um, the church began to uh, understand that 
like, like while, while we are sinners, meaning we continue to sin as Christians, this is why we can do confessions every Sunday here at the garden, uh, a Christian is, is not someone who enjoys and pursues in an unrepentant way the things of the world. Um, a Christian is not somebody who doesn't ever grieve over their sin. A Christian is not somebody in this case who is just simply drinking as much cheap sangria as possible to get drunk as much as possible, to, literally just destroying his, his health, sleeping around with as many girls as, as he possibly can, just enjoying the flesh, living in debauchery. What a great word that is. So what is the church to do? Well, on a very sad day, this church gathered together, assembled, and they excommunicated Abraham from their church, from the membership within their church. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 5 if you're not there, and I want to look at this very difficult passage that we have arrived at this morning. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Now, let's just remember that we're talking here about the Corinthian culture. So when he says pagans, he's referring to the secular Corinthians. And remember, the Corinthian culture, a thousand prostitutes every day would go to work at the temple under the name of religion, and they would perform their services for the men coming there uh, in the name of their religion. The Corinthian girl became synonymous with the word prostitute. So he's, when he says this isn't even acceptable among the pagans, this should like make our eyes pop out of our heads. Like This is the Corinthian culture, and what's, what they're tolerating in the church is not even tolerated in Corinth. What's happening? It says a man has his father's wife. So there's a man in the church who is in an affair with his stepmother. And we're going to hope that it's his stepmother, not his blood mother. All right? We're just kind of going that route. There's an affair that's happening with a man and his stepmother. Verse 2. And you, he says, are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though, he, uh, though I, Paul, am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now there's interesting language there. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, what's present? My spirit, he says, is present. So he's saying, now when you are gathered and, and when I'm there in spirit, we're there now together in the name of Christ. Therefore, the, the spirit of Christ is present, and so there's something uh, about the assembly of the body in which, which contains the, the presence, the power, the authority of the Spirit of Christ. So he's not saying form a committee to deal with this, or when your elders are meeting, or when you're getting together for a couple beers, just take care of the matter then. But he's saying when you're coming together in the name of Christ, as the assembly, as the body of Christ, the Spirit of Christ is now present. He says, hand him over. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump because that's what you really are. 
For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy swindlers, idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Now I am writing to you not to associate with anybody who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Everybody just take a deep breath. Breathe out. All right, we're still alive. Purge the evil person from among you. Remove, he says in verse 2, remove this brother from among you. Verse 5, hand him over. The old word is excommunication or excommunion, which literally means that the church has communioned with this brother. The church has affirmed this brother's uh, uh, claim of being a Christian, and they have welcomed him into the circle of their church life. They have then communed with him. He's been brought into the community. They have taken the Lord's Supper with, with, with him. They've literally taken communion. What he's saying is, is to remove him from that. He says later on, remove him from the table. Don't eat with him. Ex-communion. Now, I realize that a, a sermon this morning on excommunication is about as popular as a sermon on how to hit your head with a hammer or something like that. Like, nobody's growing churches off of these kind of sermons, all right? We're just going to recognize that um, this, this isn't sort of like the, the uh, seeker-sensitive church growth sermon. Um, However, just because it's not popular, I don't, think mean, I don't think that means that we should avoid this chapter. Um, and I hope you would agree. We shouldn't just simply jump from chapter 4 to chapter 6 because chapter 5 is very hard and very difficult to deal with. As a matter of fact, we might even go one more step and we might say because it's unpopular, maybe we should talk about it all the more so. Maybe there's a reason, maybe there's some underlying tension, maybe there's, there are some things here that we're not actually talking about which makes a sermon like excommunication unpopular in, in the average church in America. So, let's, let's start off with, with this first premise. God has given the local church, the local assembly, authority to affirm a Christian claim. Now, that is about a, uh, as anti-American of a doctrine or a statement that I can possibly make. God has given you, the local assembly, the authority on earth to affirm or deny a Christian claim. Now, before you leave, stick with me. Follow along. Look at verse 4. I want to point a couple things out to you. He says, when you are assembled in the name, so there's this assembly that is taking place when, when, when you are assembled, when two or three are gathered, the spirit and power of the Lord Jesus is there. So there's an authority that's given to the, to the assembly. Skipping down, 
to, uh, to, to verse 9 and 10, he there talks about the difference between judging the outsiders. He says, evidently Paul wrote to them before and, and said, don't judge. Uh, or he, says, he, he said, judge. And they took that to mean judge those who are not Christians. Um, and Paul is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I'm not talking about judging those who are not part of the church. Um, it's not your place to judge what happened at the Grammys, say. All right, the world is the world is the world. The world's going to do what the world's going to do, and God is the judge of the world, not you, all right? But you are, he says, to judge, and he makes this very clear, you are to judge those who are inside of the church, those who bear the name of brother. Verse 12, he says, for what do I have to do with judging the outsiders? It is those inside the church whom you are to judge. So there is a command, an authority that is given to the church to actually be in some way a, a judge or a court to determine the, uh, uh, the authenticity, if you would, of a claim uh, that someone is a Christian, the affirmation of a Christian claim. Now, to, to give you an example of this, imagine that you went down to the MVA to get your state of Maryland ID. If you, if you go to the MVA to get your ID, you need to take a couple things with you. You're gonna need to take your birth certificate, right? You're gonna need to take your um, passport, if you have one. Um, you're gonna need to take a uh, social security card, that's the word I was looking for. Uh, you're gonna need to take maybe two or three proofs of address that you actually live where you claim to live. Now, let me ask you this question. Is the MVA um, making you a citizen of Maryland by giving you an ID? No. Uh, the MVA doesn't have jurisdiction to make you a citizen of Maryland. What the MVA does is they, they, they look at the evidence that you are a citizen of Maryland, and then they issue you an ID card saying, yes, as best as we can tell, now it's possible that they make a wrong decision, right? It's possible to falsify documents. As best as we can tell, you are a citizen of Maryland, and here is your citizen of Maryland ID card. In the same way, the church doesn't make somebody a citizen of the kingdom. Um, the, it's, it's, it's not the church's place to determine whether or not you are indeed a Christian, but the God has given a certain kind of jurisdiction to the church in the same way that the state has given the MVA a certain kind of jurisdiction. God has given the, the church a certain kind of jurisdiction which says that we are to look at the evidence of a claim and do our best to make a decision as to whether or not that claim is legit, to whether or not this person truly is a citizen of the kingdom of God. So in this way, then, the church becomes what you could call a fruit inspector. So Christians are to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so someone presenting themselves to the church then is basically saying, hey, examine me. And if I give evidence of being a Christian, a Christian affirm that. And now we're brought into the communion of the church. Now, if this person no longer gives evidence, or it's proven or it's shown that their, their evidence was falsified, then it's the church's duty and job now to remove that affirmation of citizenship from that person, the handing over. Is it not, he says, those within the church whom you are to judge? Now, at this point, we have to ask a question. 
is this good news? Like, welcome to the garden. Join our church so that we might judge you. We would love to judge you. Would you come to the basics class this afternoon so that we might judge you? Enter into to our family. Does that sound like good news to anybody? <laughs> I mean, I understand. Like, this is kind of strange, okay? But here's what I want to submit today, and this is what I want to propose. As strange as it is, and as countercultural as this is, what we're seeing here in 1 Corinthians 5 and this picture of excommunication is actually love. Now, not only do I want to show that excommunication in and of itself is countercultural, but I want to show this. True, real love is countercultural. The way the world has described love is not entirely and always accurate. In the Bible, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. We are called to love each other. Not in the same way that a husband and wife loves. Not in the same way that we love our uh, neighbor who's not a Christian, who we are also to love. We are called to a specific kind of love within the church. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 10, he says, anybody who loves their brother or sister lives in the light. What I want to show is that this, this handing over, if you would, this removal from, is actually love at its finest. Three ways that this is love. Let me show you. Number one, uh, excommunication is indeed and actually it's, it's love for the unrepentant sinner. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, when you are assembled together, when you come together, the Spirit of Jesus is present, the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Now let's stop right there. That has got to be one of the creepiest lines in the entire Bible. You are to deliver this man to Satan. Like we immediately just have this picture in our mind of like these people coming together and, and they bring this, this, uh, this man out who's having an affair with his mom or his stepmom or whoever she is and they, they then hand him over to this horned creature and he takes him and drags him to hell or something. Like what does that mean? To hand, is that love? How can that hand this brother over to Satan? How can that possibly be love for that man? That sounds like hate for that man. Is Paul contradicting, contradicting himself? In the earlier chapters of 1 Corinthians, we've seen the call to, for unity. We've seen the call to love. Now Paul is saying, hand this man over to Satan. The next line shows us how this is actually not hate, but it's love. He says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. So first, there is a real danger at hand. We, we've already talked about the difference between spiritual man and natural man. Paul has sort of made that very clear in the early chapters of Corinthians. And what he's saying is, this brother here is acting as if he's natural man. Like, I'm not sure that he is in, indeed spiritual man. Meaning, I'm not sure that he is in the grace of Christ. I'm not sure that he has understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am not sure 
of these things. Like, I, I believe that this man actually is heading for destruction. There is a real danger here that Paul is, that Paul is aware of, of unrepentant sort of ongoing sin. Hebrews chapter 10 says, if we keep on sinning, meaning unrepentant, sinning, no, no grief over your sin, no, no care, just completely just pursuing the world, the things of the world, living a life of destructiveness, destructiveness. If we keep on sinning, he says there is no sacrifice for us. The first question that we have to ask in understanding how this is love is this. Is sin truly destructive? Do we really believe that sin is destructive? Now, secondly, what we see is, he says, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that he might be saved in the day of the Lord. So there is this hoped-for outcome with this removal. Paul is hoping that this brother is indeed genuine. He's hoping that he's actually wrong in his estimation of this brother. He's hoping that uh, th that this brother will end up repenting of his sins, believing the gospel, and being able to stand on that judgment day called the day of the Lord. So the issue here is not um, a, a, a Christian who is like losing their salvation because they keep sinning and so they're being handed over to the devil. The issue here is somebody who is not giving evidence that they're a Christian at, at all. So they're in the church and they're comfortable and the church is allowing them to take communion and they're, they're saying, you, you're, you're, you're one of us, you're a believer. Yet all the while, it seems like they might not be. This, the, the issue here is that this church is comfortably allowing this brother to head down a road of destruction. Is sin really destructive? That is the question we have to ask ourselves. Unrepentant sin leads to death. Are we all sinners? Yes. Do I, Joel Kurz, commit ongoing sin? Yes. The Christian is not somebody who has completely stopped sinning. The Christian is not somebody who has arrived at perfection. The Christian is someone who grieves over their sin. The Christian is someone who confesses their sin. The Christian is someone who repents of their sin over and over and over again. The situation here with this brother in this case is, is these, these signs of how a Christian ought to be dealing with sin, they're just simply not present. There is no grieving. There's only boasting. There is no fight. There's only an embrace. There is no repentance. There's only a pursual of the world. Two soldiers went into battle. One soldier had on a helmet, had on a bulletproof vest, and had boots that would protect his feet. He carried with him a rifle that was loaded and ready. He was fit. He was trim. He, he, he could breathe well. He was, he was in shape. Number two, his second soldier, he's walking alongside this dude, and he's wearing a cap, a baseball cap. He left his bulletproof vest back at the tent. He's wearing flip-flops. His He's carrying a gun, but his, his gun is jammed, and he, he doesn't even know how to, how to fix it. He's bleeding out of the leg. Let's just see how far I can take this. He sliced an artery in his leg, playing with a knife back at the tent. 
And he's, his flip-flops are flapping around uh, in a bunch of nasty blood. All right. <laughs> we'll just stop right there. We could go on. Let me ask, is it love, all right, for soldier number one to recognize this and to see these things and to say nothing to his brother, his comrade? Is that a loving thing to do, to say, you know what, he's his own man, I'm not responsible for him. If he wants to wear a cap into battle, like who am I to tell him not to, you know? If he, if he thinks he can fight bleeding out the leg, that's cool. Like, it's not my place to address these things. Um, would it be love? Of course it wouldn't be love. Like, th- this soldier number one is allowing soldier number two, his, who is apparently completely um, ignorant when it comes to the imminent danger that is ahead, Soldier number one is allowing soldier number two to head into this danger and and to essentially walk into his death. You see, when we talk about sin, are we talking about something that's just sort of like a nagging problem? Something that we don't like about ourselves? Like, I don't don't, don't like the way my nose looks. I don't like the way my, my, my hair is falling out in certain spots. Or is sin something that is destructive? Is sin something that is truly destructive in the life of a believer? Is unrepentant, ongoing sin a sign that this person, this soldier, is actually walking toward their death? You see, it is love, then, that speaks into the life of this brother. What Paul is doing here is not mean. He's not being mean to this brother that's caught in sin. He's actually loving him. What's mean is that the church would allow it to go on and say nothing and turn their heads and make this guy comfortable in their midst on the road to destruction. Paul is saying, no, stop being mean and start loving this guy. What he's essentially saying is, is put him outside of your midst. Allow him to experience the loss of the intimacy of the fellowship of, of God's people. Put him outside of the table. Allow him to experience the coldness of being away from the Lord's table. Turn him over, he says, to Satan. Meaning, if he wants to act like, 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 like he's sort of on Satan's side. If, if this is a soldier that's flirting with the enemy, fine. Let the enemy have him, essentially. Let him see that, 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 uh, that sin is hollow. Let him see that what the enemy offers is, is, is false, is fake. Let him see that Satan is a deceiver. Let him see that there is no lasting joy in pursuing the flesh. Let him see that this is just destruction so that he might be saved in the end. How would he be saved in the end? Because going through this process will, Lord willing, hopefully this is the hoped for outcome, it will open his eyes to the destruction that, he, that, that, that uh, he's living his life on and that he would repent and believe the gospel and be welcomed back into the life of the church. If you think that church discipline or excommunication, this is sort of the end result of discipline, if you think that it's cruel, one of two uh, things are true. Either you believe that unrepentant sin is truly destructive, but you just don't love your brother and sister enough to talk about it. Or, 
you do truly love your brother and sister, and you don't believe that unrepentant sin is truly destructive. What Paul is giving here for this, for this brother in sin is true hope and true love. Now, let's go on. So first, excommunication is actually as strange as it, as it is and as foreign as it seems to our natural instincts. It's actual, actually love for the unrepentant sinner. Secondly, excommunication is love for the church, verses 6 through 8. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little bit of leaven or like yeast, imagine a a loaf of bread that you're making, you put a little bit of yeast in, it leavens the whole lump. So what happens with a little bit of yeast, you bakers? The whole bread rises, correct? It affects the whole lump. So he says in the same way, oh, by the way, I should note this, leaven in the Bible is, uh, is a picture of sin. So what he's saying is this, a little bit of leaven, cleanse out the old, so that you might be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, so Christ has died for your sins. This is who you really are. You're not somebody who's enchained, uh, enslaved or chained to sin anymore. Let us therefore, he says, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and of truth. If sin is truly destructive, what Paul is saying is it, it works like yeast. And so you put a little bit of sin into a loaf of bread and it actually in some way affects the entire loaf. So, so, so in the same, same way that this, this soldier now is, is out there walking alongside his comrade and just com- simply ignoring the, the problems of his his fellow soldier. If this man, if this soldier, number one, were to look at this guy and say, okay, I see that you have problems, but you know what? We don't talk about the problems with the rest of the troops. All right, we're going to kind of cover it up. It's going to be a secret between you and me. So let's imagine now that soldier number one gives this soldier number two a pair of red pants so that way the, the blood doesn't show through. Let's say he uh, he puts a pillow inside of his shirt to make it look like he's wearing some kind of protection over his chest. And then he says, let's just, look, let's just keep this a secret between you and I. The, the troops don't need to know about this. Now, question, is that love for the troop? What's going to happen in battle? Well, we can only imagine that as they enter into battle, this brother who's about to die because he's bleeding out the leg, remember, is going to be easily overcome by the enemy, and the enemy is going to come through and attack the entire troop. Meaning, the loving thing to do for the brother is to address it and to remove him. The loving thing to do for the troop as a whole is to address it. See, what Paul says here is he says, bring the troop together and publicly address the fact that this dude's bleeding out the leg. Now, in our culture today, this is just strange. Like, is it, aren't sins private? How can you talk about somebody's private sins in such a public manner? It's absolutely countercultural, and I get that. It's strange for me to even think about, and it's strange to, to try to practice in the life of a local church. But we have to ask ourselves this question Is sin truly destructive? Is this guy uh, heading toward his own death? 
Is he heading toward the death of others within the troop or within the church? There is some sense here in which sin of one believer or one unrepentant believer actually does affect the entire body. Now, we can't always explain how this works. It's not always logical. But in some sense, there, the, the sin of one unrepentant unbeliever in a congregation affects the entire loaf of bread. Now, sometimes we can logically sort of see how that works. Let me give you an example. Imagine that you are, uh, un, th- there's an unrepentant, ongoing struggle with pornography in your life, meaning it's just something you delight in, it's something you enjoy. Imagine you're up late on Saturday night enjoying it. You come to church on Sunday morning. You feel bad. You feel guilty. You feel uh, angry. You feel grumpy. Someone comes up to you and wants to talk and and has has an issue that they need to work through. You're not in the place to give counsel. Uh, There's some wisdom that's needed. You're not in the place to, to understand the mind of God and to have the insight and the wisdom of God. And then you just basically get out as quickly as you possibly can. There's an example of how one unrepentant sin of one believer hurts the entire body. You removed from the body a good gift. Paul is saying here, look, this is an issue not just with, one, with his one brother, but there, this is an issue that is affecting the entire body of believers. If you care about the life of the local church, then you must remove this brother from among you. So, church discipline... Excommunication loves the brother in sin. It also is love for the church. The first churches in America, they did church discipline like all the time. For them, church discipline was seen as as important as baptism and communion. So as often as we do communion, they would be doing church discipline as well. All right? The way they would do it, they would sit in a room like this and they would, they would say, okay, let's start accusing each other. And they would make accusations. That person is in ongoing unrepentant sin. Then that person would stand up and they would defend themselves. And if they they were found, yeah, there's a couple other witnesses, they're in unrepentant sin, then the church would say, okay, now what do we do? And they would make a decision right there. They took it very seriously. uh, Roughly 2% of of the congregations of the church in America historically Roughly 2% were excommunicated every year. It's a lot of people. Why would they take it so seriously? It's because they just simply saw that we are in a war. Like we're not playing a game here. We're not just like doing some nice religious thing, but we are in the middle of a war and there is a real enemy that really wants to destroy you. There is a real enemy that truly wants to drag you into your destruction. We are in a war, they believed. And so we can't play around with this sort of stuff. And so it is love. All right, number three. Let's move on. Number three, excommunication, is finally it's love for the lost, meaning the, the non-believers. Now, one area that makes excommunication hard in real life as we're really like trying to practice this. One of the areas that makes it hard is if we, if we remove this brother or sister from membership or we kick them out, what, what is their unsaved friends, or the non-Christians, what are, what are the lost going to think of us? 
And that is a fine question to ask, but the other way that we can ask that question is this. If we don't remove this brother or sister, what is the lost going to think of us? You see, look in the text again, um, right there in verse 9 and 10. He there is very clear. He said, like, you mistakenly believed that, I thought that, that you, you thought I was saying to judge the outsiders. He's saying, uh, as far as the outsiders go, the sexually immoral of this world, the greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters, I'm not talking about disassociating with them. Meaning, we are to be associating with outsiders who are drunks, hustlers, prostitutes, greedy, etc. So every time you get accused of being a, a, a sinner or being a drunk or being whatever because you're associating yourself with the prostitutes and with the greedy and with the drunks, etc., praise God for that. Every time you get frisked because you were having a conversation with a drug dealer on the corner, praise God for that. All right, that is what we should be doing. But he says we are not, though, to be associating with a brother uh, who, who is living in this way or a sister who is living in this, in this way. So someone who self-identifies in your church as a Christian, as someone who has repented and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they are a prostitute, they are uh, uh, living their life in a greedy fashion, trying to accumulate as much wealth as they possibly can, they are uh, taking advantage of one another. Paul is saying it's those inside of the church that you are to not associate with in this way. Why is this? The world is not attracted to the church when our young men are pursuing greed, uh, pursuing the flesh, living life however they please. The world is not attracted to the church when our young women are sleeping around. The world is not attracted to the church when our older women are uh, lacking in self-control and getting drunk all of the time. The world is not attracted to the church when our old men are living a life for themselves. Meaning, when we just simply look like the world, when we, when, we, when we look in the same way as anybody else would look in any other random group of people, there's, we, we've, we've lost our flavor. And so if we are truly then going to love those who are outside of the church, if we're going to love those who we are pursuing and who we are associating with outside of the church, then we must care about the purity of the, those inside, inside of the church. Our love for the lost uh, uh, drives then the preservation of God's people inside the church. Our love for the lost drives our desire to have an alternative kind of society that is called the church, so that the church will then be attractive to those who are being called by the gospel, so that we don't lie to the world about who Jesus actually is. Some time ago, uh, our church had to go through a very difficult period in which there was a member who was living a very destructive life. And as we pursued this member, 
In multiple ways, there was, there was no change and only further destruction in their life. Through many tears, through many difficult conversations, it became apparent that we, we must remove this member from the life of the church. And so on a very sad day, we removed this member. Now, as we did it, our hearts broke in multiple ways. What we're talking about today is not easy. It's not something that we should enjoy. This is actually the worst, or maybe, uh, maybe not the worst, it's the hardest part of living this life together. When this member was removed, it, our hearts broke in, in a number of ways. One, our hearts broke for the person because it was our desire to see them repent, and it still is. Our hearts broke for the person because they're living a life of destruction, and it's as if they, uh, they were clueless. Our hearts broke for the person because we truly want them to taste the goodness of Christ. Number two, our hearts broke because this affected the church. It hurt the church in many different ways. Number three, our hearts broke for this person's non-Christian friends because these friends of this person were all this person knew when it came to the message of Jesus Christ, the testimony of Jesus Christ and the gospel. See, friends, at the end of the day, this is about the integrity of our, the, the message of Jesus Christ. Are we lying to the world about who we are? Are we lying to the world about who Christ is? Church discipline, then, is never fun. As I stated, it is probably the most difficult part of what it means to, to, to live this life together. However, church discipline is maybe one of the most loving things we can possibly do for one another. Therefore, belonging to a church matters. Membership matters. It matters to stand before a congregation and say, test me, examine me. If, if, I, if I fail to produce evidence that I'm truly a believer in Jesus Christ, let me know. Walk with me. I crave that. I want that. And it's love to do that for one another. To say we realize that we are in a war together and we must take this seriously. We must watch over the souls of one another. For four years, Abraham, the guy uh, who decided to pursue the world, for four years he basically lived a life of destruction. Uh, played as a musician, which in and of itself, John is not living a life of destruction. We'll give it to the musicians. But as a musician, he pursued every possible way that he could take advantage of his musical gift and use it for, uh, uh, for his own glory and for, for the glory of his flesh. And he lived a life of just absolute destruction. Now, after about four years, he was uh, uh, reading an email from a friend, and there was a verse included in that email uh, th that was from the book of Romans in the Bible. And he thought to himself, you know what, I think I'm going to read through Romans. And so he went to the store and he bought a 40-ounce can of cheap beer, which that in and of itself should be church discipline, like cheap beer. 
and he rolled a couple cigarettes, and he sat down to read Romans. And he said in his words, he said, by the time I got to chapter 10, I was a Christian. And finally, his eyes were opened. After the church had made this difficult decision to remove him from the comfort of being a family member, to turn him over to the world. After four years of that, he his eyes were opened and he repented of his sins and he believed the gospel. Soon after that, the church had a massive service, a restoration service where they welcomed him back into the fellowship of the body. Many tears flowed at that service. You see, at the end of the day, we we have to decide whether or not we trust the word of God or we trust our natural instincts. And I think we could each say if we trusted our natural instincts, we probably wouldn't have done anything to Abraham four years previous. We would have just sort of turned our head and just ignored it and hoped that it changed. But this church trusted the Word of God. And they turned him over to the life that he wanted to live. They said, if that's the life you're going to live, then live that life. And God proved to be wiser than we are. And it brought about, in the end, this man's eventual return, repentance, so that he may be saved in the day of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give us wisdom. This is uh, one of the more difficult passages that we have looked at recently. But God, we, we don't want to ignore it just because it's difficult. We ask that you give us wisdom in what it means to be faithful Uh, to your word and to one another as we love each other in this way. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.